This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program for the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. Want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hi, this is Robin Curtis, and I played Lieutenant Savick in Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock, and Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. And you're listening to Standard Orbit on Trek FM. Risk is our business. It's like nothing we've dealt with before. My golly, Jim, I'm beginning to think I can cure a rainy day. I can't change the laws of physics. Now in standard orbit, sir. Welcome, everyone, to Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated podcast that covers the original and new cast of Captain Kirk and the Enterprise. I am Ken Tripp. I am Zach Moore. And I'm Haley Stoddart. And we have a very special guest with us today. I am so excited to welcome Jacqueline Kim to Standard Orbit. Welcome aboard. (laughs) Thank you so much. Yeah, so Jacqueline, uh, Ken and I had the opportunity to meet you earlier this year at at Star Trek Las Vegas. Uh, So obviously, you started in Star Trek Generations, this being a Star Trek podcast. But we'll, of course, get to that. But we kind of want to dig into more about, like, you, your journey as an actor, what you're up to these days. So, you know, just to start us out, like, how did you get into this whole industry of acting and then that led you eventually to being on Star Trek? That's a really long answer. (laughs) I'm going to try to be a bit succinct and feel free to ask questions. I grew up in the Detroit area. My mother was born in Japan and my father was born in Korea. And both of their young lives were affected by the Korean War. My father lost his mother and um, he came to this country right after the the Korean conflict. And my mother came years later. um, She also lost her brother in a student demonstration in, um, it's called Sayogu, which happened um, April 19th. So she came a number of years later and they didn't know each other very well and they got married because it was semi-arranged. So that's, that's just pretty interesting background. My father was an architect. So we were all, my sisters and I were born in Ohio and he brought us to uh, Detroit when he went there to do his, to work with the first firm that he worked with. We were in a lower middle class suburb of Detroit and we basically studied music and a lot of art at school. And eventually I would go to the local community theater and see them doing acting classes there. And I was pretty interested in what they were doing and I didn't really have a context for it. 
And I started in musical theater and I wasn't really even a very good actor, but there was a, a lady there at that theater who saw a lot of talents in me that I had not seen. And um, she'd actually been in the army, which might be interesting to you, Ken. She was a sergeant in the army. And um, she pushed me to audition for um, a very serious acting school in Chicago and I got in, which was a big surprise. And my parents were not very excited about the fact that I wanted to go into acting what were they trying to push you into or where did they expect you or where did they want you to go as far as your profession? I know you said your dad was an architect. Was it something in business or? I think that they wanted me, they thought that I had a good noggin on my head and they wanted me to be a doctor. And it, I don't think it was just stereotypical, like all Asian people want their kids to be doctors and lawyers. That's true. But I mean, I really think they thought that I, my life would be better and I would be able to serve others better in that profession. And as, and as time went on, did they become more accepting of the, the profession you chose? No. No. I would say that although cut to many, many years later, my father was coming out of very serious surgery on his body and apparently the nurse told me that when he, when he came to, he said something like, my daughter is an actress, right? So if I wouldn't hear these things <laughs> secondhand, I wouldn't know. Because uh, my parents were just not, they were not from a generation or a culture that would express things like that directly. So that's a rather long-winded way of saying that I went to acting school, I came out of acting school, came out to LA for a moment, but it was just so stressful to be out here that I went right back uh, to just do theater. And I ended up um, getting into, after a long period of trying to get cast in things and hearing, you know, wow, you're, you're really gifted, um, you're really talented, but uh, we can't really go with an Asian person in this role. Um, I was hearing it over and over again. I finally um, found a director who wanted to, he wanted to cast me, but he just made me audition over and over and over again. And I think probably for listeners out there, you might not understand what that's like, but it's literally like you come in, you prepare the work, you work with someone, let's say for half an hour, an hour, then they say, we'd like you to come back and we'd like you to come back. And I think I went back and forth with this person like 10 or 15 times. And finally he was like, okay, I'll take the chance. Wow. Like, we ended up doing a play where I played a daughter in a, um, a Shaw play, it's called Mrs. Warren's Profession. And they even got people writing in because um, it was in a nice suburb of Northern uh, Chicago and people were writing in and saying, you know, this doesn't work. She doesn't look like her mother. and um, so like the, the willingness to like suspend one's disbelief wasn't there. So it was, it was, a, it was definitely a challenge, but, um, eventually I got into, uh, a great classical acting company called the Guthrie theater, um, in Minneapolis. And I was one of three women and there were 27 men in this company. And, um, I just got to play the best roles of my life. 
sort of when you're young and you're on this trajectory and you're like, oh my God, I'm going to make this work. I know the odds are completely against me. I know my parents are not into this. You just sort of like push, push, push and you work. And um, I found that even though I was really good at the work and I was excelling at the work, I was sort of stunted in an emotional way. And so even though the work went very far and I was learning a lot about being a human being as an actor, um, I was not growing in other ways. So that eventually led to me, you know, one year I worked like 51 weeks out of 52 weeks. Oh, wow. And I just broke down. So I was like, you know, I have to stop this work. But I met a director who thought that my work was very subtle. Um, and he recommended that I go to Hollywood and try to be in films. And within a few months, I think that was in the mid 90s, I'd arrived to LA. And very shortly after that, I got the audition for Star Trek Generations. Question there for you, you know, you, you wanted to go into acting, but did you have a like, I want to be a stage actress, or I want to be a movie actress or television? Like, did you have a preference? Or were you just happy to be acting no matter the media? Like when you first thought about getting into the industry? I had, first of all, no idea that I would be a good actor. I mean, what really drew me to acting more than any perception of fame or or being perceived in any prestigious way was I was in a room where people were talking and listening to each other. And growing up in an Asian American household where there'd been a lot of trauma uh, for my parents' generation and before, there just wasn't opportunity for, for conversation and for really speaking. So that's why I was drawn to it. Um, and then I went to conservatory in Chicago, which, you know, art schools just mold you into like this, like super serious, like my work is like so important and you know, we shouldn't compromise at all kind of thing. So coming out to LA was so different. Right. I mean, just so incredibly different. Do you, I wonder if growing up in an area that had access to, you know, theaters and stuff like that. I live in a very, very tiny little town. We have a theater here, <laughs> but it's not on the grand scale of anything major. No one would know of it. Do you think that really kind of assisted you in going into acting and writing and everything else? If you hadn't had access to that, do you think you would have gone a different direction? I think that my connection to acting absolutely happened because of community um, and yes, because of that community theater. But for me, it wasn't like, wow, I had, I didn't have any previous understanding of what acting was. So it wasn't like, wow, I'm, I'm starting in the theater. It was more like, wow, this group of people want me around. It's like that simple. I remember one summer we did West Side Story. I was really young, you know, and I was playing Anita and I met a group of other actors and a lot of us were sort of gender fluid and, you know, just young upstarts not knowing. We were just sort of misfits, I guess, but we found each other and it was a really important time. So from there, it became more prestigious when you go, you know, to a good acting school and then, and then you learn your chops. Like I learned how to do Shakespeare and um, Chekhov and the Greeks and, 
So I feel almost like I was raised up by really good writers, really good texts. And then that's the context wherein I started writing myself. In the classical theater company, it's like the ingenues usually come on stage and it's a very important moment and then they go away for like 45 minutes or an hour. And, and it's like 20 years later when they come back. And so I'd be like, what happened in those 20 years? And that's when I started writing. I'd be like, hmm, maybe this happened. Maybe that happened. Did you ever find it more of a challenge to perform your own writing or do you feel like since you wrote it you know it better than anyone so you're more qualified like it's a what it's like a different mindset when you do uh someone else's writing or your own work that's such a great question i haven't written enough to say that i could really compare but um we'll probably talk about advantageous eventually and i wore so many hats on that film and um the writing was almost like my subconscious because I was worried about so many other things. It'd be like, action. I'd be like, I have no idea. Like, I, I wouldn't be like, I have to get into character. I'd just be like, talk, Jacqueline, talk. <laughs> and in a really great way, I was like, just feed off of the other actor. Just because the other, the, there's a young actress who played opposite me in most of my scenes and she was 14 and not really an actor. And she was so real and so available that I would just be like, I'll just take you in. That brings us to the mid-90s then. You're in Hollywood. You're in L.A. How did you go about landing the role in Star Trek Generations? So when I was at the Guthrie Theater, uh, an agent came and saw another actor in the play, and he was interested in my work. So we formed a connection. And when I came out to L.A., I just had a series of these meetings very, very different context, uh, Los Angeles from theater. In theater, you get to read a whole play and go in and audition a scene, you get to prepare. And in LA, it's sort of like you come and sit in a room and people just kind of stare at you and <laughs> ask questions, if you're lucky. And you hear like faxes and assistants talking in other rooms and you're just, it's, it's just a very awkward situation. But Star Trek Generations, I think my agent was representing Malcolm McDowell, and he played Soren in the film. And I didn't know this. I didn't know that he repped him, but I had the audition. And sometimes getting an audition when you're new to Hollywood is a really big deal. And I went in for the audition, uh, and it was a good day. I felt prepared. I didn't have an apartment of my own. I didn't really know anyone. I just sort of sat down on the work, which is what I do. The sun was shining in a nice way that day. I literally remember. Well, that's fantastic. So we're always curious of any interesting stories or experiences, uh, if you had anybody on set that you really connected to. Um, did you have any of those that you'd like to share with us? So I came from the theater and I didn't know, when you're in the theater, you're not thinking about what you look like. Um, really, I mean, people put you in costume and you prepare your makeup, but then you go and do the play for a few hours. But when you're on a film set, how you look is incredibly important. So I would say that there was, for me, an inordinate amount of focus on the way that I looked and that definitely felt like an obstacle to performing. So there was that going on. It was a very hot set. Everyone was hot and we were all in wool. Hmm. 
like I think we were in three layers of clothes. Yeah, those uniforms are pretty heavy. <laughs> we were sweating. Yes, that's what was happening. That's probably why, because we had some of the greatest makeup artists in the business. I think the Westmores were working on it. Yes. And um, yeah, I had like this legend, you know, putting makeup on my face because I was just sweating. And I'm sure I was super serious. Everyone else was probably just having fun and relaxed. And I was just like, oh, no, I'm going to get this right. I'm going to get that like, panel right. And I'm going to drive this ship really specifically. <laughs> Meeting Alan Ruck was really fun. Alan and I were in our, I mean, here's another thing about being in a film. It's, he taught me the phrase, hurry up and wait. Mm, yes. Um, which is basically they roll actors in on film sets and then they put you in your makeup and your costumes and they stuff you with breakfast and then they say, mm, it's going to be a bit of a wait. <laughs> and I remember um, we both woke up from naps like <laughs> four or five hours <laughs> after our call and I was like, do you know whether we're ever going to get on? And he's like, well, you know, this is hurry up and wait. Did you have any kind of preconceptions about Star Trek before you got this part? Like, had you watched any of the show, or was it just another like, oh yeah, Star Trek? I've heard, I know what that is, and I'm gonna be on the be on this next movie. Or what? What was kind of your mindset approaching something like Star Trek, which which had been around for so long by this point? My sister was a Trekkie, so she had the show on in the background as I was growing. So like, <laughs> I remember. I would hear the theme song and I would turn over and I'd look and it, it always looked like people were wearing a layer of makeup and like <laughs> these really cool like color tones and their costumes. And I remember thinking that it looked almost like a soap opera, but just sort of in a futuristic set. I wasn't invested in it, but I thought it was interesting. I think that I watched um, Lost in Space like that was sort of my outer space show so no I didn't really have any concept I knew who Sulu was for sure what was it like working with George Takei also George Takei was not in the film that's right see I block out generations because I don't like the ending <laughs> <laughs> well there it is you are allowed yeah. to block that out you know how these Star Trek inventions, they, they're like, hey, look, it's the Sulus or <laughs> the Rikers or something. Mm -hmm. Have you uh, got a chance to kind of meet and go to any of these conventions with George Takei? No, they did. They got us together for a convention in, I think it was in Vegas. But when we first met, it was, it was really lovely. Because before I met him, he'd asked about me um, on the first day of shooting he had Walter Koenig come up to me and ask me. He said, hi, I'm a friend of George Takei. And I said, great. And he said, he played your father. And I, and I said, yes, I know. And he said, <laughs> he would like to know if you're of Japanese descent. And I remember thinking, really? <laughs> okay. And I said, well, I guess... No, I'm not of Japanese descent. Please tell him. And, um, but that was my only connection to him prior to meeting him at the um, convention. And when I met him at the convention, he was just, I mean, George Takei is the most generous, focused, strongest. He's like bright, bright sunshine. He's just, an, he's just a great person. So I was really grateful to meet him. 
And what did you think of the film yourself, Jacqueline? We know how Haley feels, but I'm curious about you now. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed it. I mean, I have to say around that time, I also got Disclosure and a film with Alan Alda before that. So when I first got to town, I just got films right away. And But I'd never really seen myself in a film. I'd seen myself in like a moment in Mighty Ducks or... So it's still kind of strange to see yourself in a film. Have any of you guys ever seen yourself in a film? I've seen myself on television. For that, I work a lot of behind the scenes on, on multimedia things. So on, on occasion, I'm mostly behind the camera. Occasionally, I'm on the front of the camera. And I always find myself looking at myself like if there's a monitor. <laughs> you know, because you're just very self-conscious about that sort of thing. So Sure. Well, imagine acting inside your body for years and years and not ever seeing what that's like. Although they had archived a good deal of our performances from the Guthrie. And to see yourself on the screen is really... It's really kind of a trippy experience. But how did I feel about the film? I enjoyed it. I thought it was very rich and full. And I didn't know Next Generation so well. I got to know the people on the set. They were a great, great group and quite bonded. I enjoy the time warp aspect of Star Trek. I like how deeply steeped in physics the show is. You know, coming from a contemplative tradition, I think that when you really try to break things down, they're not necessarily how you say them or how other people have taught you to perceive them. Like, time is really relative. And I, I, I just enjoyed, I enjoyed the time warp aspect. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Well, I think we get it. Yeah, it's uh, it's not always the clearest thing in, in Star Trek, that's for sure, in the Nexus and whatever that was. But I, I think we, I think we get you. I, I like this notion, though, of parallel universes happening at the same time. And, and then I've heard about the, the different, the Calvin, the different timelines for Star Trek. That's, that's all pretty interesting. Yeah, the thing about Star Trek is it can take a lot of highbrow scientific concepts and just kind of introduce them to the public, you know, in like an entertaining package. And people talking about string theory and parallel universes and all that. And, you know, that that's the I mean, at least myself, having watched Star Trek at a young age, that's how I was introduced to a lot of these things like faster than light travel and and different classes of planets. And I'm like, hey, Star Trek, that's a great way to communicate this science to the general public. So, I, yeah, I, I feel you for sure. So I was wondering, is it kind of the do you notice when you watch yourself on screen, you're noticing like, oh, I, I'm doing that with my with my body things that, you know, you'd normally do in person, but you don't realize it until you actually see it on your screen or my hair is like that or I keep tucking behind my ear. Do you like are you talking little nuances that you just don't realize that you do normally? Hmm. Well, I think in acting school, they do train you to be aware of your habits. I mean, there are people just kind of watching you, um, the way that you speak, the way that you move, the way you express, the different techniques of what you're doing. Um, so you become aware of that quite early because they try, it's, it, there's some kind of military aspect to it, Ken, because I think that they try to make you let go and neutralize as much as possible so that you won't repeat things, right? And that won't get in the way of picking up a characterization. But it is a pretty interesting and trippy thing to start to relate to yourself when you do have to watch yourself over a period of time. 
Do you know what I mean? So you're looking at you and there's a perception of you, but it's not you. It's a representation of you. Okay. So were there, have there been opportunities for you to reprise your role as Damara Sulu? No, I haven't heard of any personally. Uh, at the recent Star Trek Las Vegas uh, convention, I was asked by a number of people if I would be reappearing in the new Picard series. Um, I don't know if that works in terms of the timeline, but no, I've not been approached at all. Yeah, I think there was a, there's, you know, Jacqueline, there's been a lot of um, fan made movies, um, and a lot of the original cast members were pulled into them. Uh, Star Trek continues, next, new voyages, all, all types of stuff. And uh, I thought, you know, I was thinking that, you know, in all of that, that would have been a, a, a pretty cool opportunity. But the thing is, you know, your, your career kept rolling um, much beyond Star Trek, I think, for. A lot of the folks that were um, deep into Star Trek or even from the series that ended, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, all of those that ended, there were a lot of actors. You didn't see them getting a lot of roles, but they would appear in these very professional fan-made, I don't even know if they were, they're fan-made because they were nonprofit, but boy, they used a lot of the same, um, uh, the sets were identical the um the acting was top notch they really did a good job with it so yeah, you, yeah alan rucky would appear in one as he came back as uh, captain herman again yeah he did and uh, they made a movie called of gods and men right and uh yeah, yeah he was he in was that. basically the star of it yeah so yeah <laughs> so i guess it's it's that's where that question was was kind of coming there's just been so much star trek out there yeah you know one of the things that um I thought was was fascinating. You were talking about the differences between theater, and then you went right into movies. Uh, so you've made a few motion. You were in a few motion pictures. Disclosure, Volcano. Those were those were big movies at the time. And then you spent a lot of time in television. So I'm curious about the different processes between making a movie and then making TV. Did it was it was it a, an abrupt swing for you? And um, you know, I guess. How did things evolve for you and, and what do you prefer? Do you prefer movies, TV, or does it matter? Uh, great question. Here's the main difference between where I was coming from, which is theater and making a film and television. Theater, you usually develop work from anywhere from four weeks to 12 weeks at a time. And even if you're not in the scene that's being worked on, you can be present in the room. So there's a real, once again, like sort of going back to what I said, why I was drawn to theater, there's a real sense of community. And it's not just about when it's my lines and my moment, it's really about understanding the whole narrative that you're a part of. In film, you're usually just brought in for those scenes that you're in. If you're really, really lucky, like with Disclosure or Volcano, I got to be there from the beginning to, to the end pretty much. And I got to see a lot. I think that that, revealed a lot to me about being an artist is that I love to watch things being made and I love watching things develop, right? That's a real privilege. So film tends to have more time for the artist versus television. Television is like film, imagine like maybe you might meet the other actor and then you um, might do a couple of read throughs spend some time together and then you start shooting it you start from the wide and let's say you just get coverage you move in so you just as Hugh Grant once said he's like 
you discover something really clever in the beginning of the day and then you beat it <laughs> to a pulp by the end of the night. You just repeat and repeat and repeat it. But in that time, you actually get to know people. But in television, imagine that you have no read through. You basically, and you might not have a process with these people, you basically have to be ready to just do it on that day within moments of arriving on that set. You don't know anyone. You just sort of prepared whatever you're working on kind of on your own. And then all of a sudden you're thrust into this reality that you have to make a reality like right now. And I think that for me, I know that when people work with each other over time, like I just, the thing I did after Advantageous was doubt and I got to work um, with a really great ensemble of actors. And I know when they've worked together over long periods of time, they develop a shorthand. And they let themselves, this is something I really enjoyed watch, watching actors do since I've left the profession, is they just sort of let themselves forget their lines. They've actually given over to just being in front of a camera and knowing how fast that process is and just let it happen. And I've watched people just be like, oh, line, help. You know, like, what's my line? Almost like making the line not so important, but being present and being more important. And that's, that's kind of fun. But it's really rare, I think, to get on a show like that. So I, I hadn't, I didn't really do television. I had some really great opportunities to potentially, uh, you know, like take on a big role in the West Wing. And I, at several junctures, decided not to. I sort of knew early on that my freedom was more important to me than being a star and making like a really big income. Wow. That's not something you hear too much about Hollywood, right? It's uh, there's, there's probably a lot of actors and actresses who'll be listening to this going, what did she say? <laughs> she walked away from the West Wing. That's, um, that's a pretty big deal, Jacqueline. Oh, they didn't make the offer. There was just a possibility of doing it. Oh, I see. No, I had several opportunities, though, to possibly like CSI early on. I don't know. I think it's because I was trained by Eastern European theater people. They just sort of taught me about the evil of Disney and the <laughs> and and to really um, hang on to my individuality. So I feel really grateful for that. And I don't mean to sound like I judge other people for doing that because I think for some people it it works with their life. But yeah, it definitely. If you sign onto a you know weekly television show, I mean that's you know, nine months out of the year, 12 hours a day, six days a week, if you're lucky, you know, I mean, that that takes over your, as I understand it, not that I've been the star of a television show or anything, but as I understand it, it really takes over your it life. It should be. <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh, you know, and you, you have a lot of, you know, other artistic interests, and those would definitely, if you had accepted one of these big roles, would have to be put on hold, it seems, and that was definitely uh, it, just in our conversation here that the, those sorts of outlets are, are or such a high value to you that you didn't want to have to put those aside. Yeah. And I think too, you get a little bit tired trying to convince people, even though you've shown that you're, that you have a gift. I remember a friend um, who's a really great actress in Paris. She's also a woman of color, similar age. And she said, you know, Jackie, I would, I would love to, uh, 
I would love to arrive to an audition and have somebody tell me you're not talented enough. And I, I, excuse the invitation, but she was just such an impeccable, beautiful woman. And she was saying, um, people were just saying, no, we're probably not going to go with someone of color for this. Or no, we're not going to go for a woman your age. Um, and those are two things that actually would become a part of advantageous, right? Um, it's like, I always think that art imitates what's going on in life. I don't know if you all find this, but I usually find that the, proje the projects that are in front of me are a reflection of my life. All three of us have actually watched and really like to discuss advantageous and, and speaking to you here, like I can definitely see your DNA all over this movie. You know, I know you obviously you starred in it and that we're, heavily involved in the production and co-wrote it but like all all the all the points you're hitting on here uh that that is like expertly communicated like and i i, I had no expectation i mean to be honest like what okay i'll check it out you know and i was like this was an amazing film science fiction at its best right because you're taking these societal issues you're talking about you know gender age discrimination like the struggles of everyday life trying to balance all that you know career woman right but then it's the future and these things are more like the opportunity there to kind of philosophize on what would you do with these choices. And uh, anyway, I, I just thought it was really spot on, very impactful film. No, spoilers, <laughs> but <laughs> I, I, really, I really loved it. So. Awesome. No, I, I, I'm drinking in whatever you want to say about the film <laughs> without, spo without like spoiler alerting it. <laughs> Well, we, we can let you have a sip of water because, and I'll let Haley have a shot. It, you know, it's funny, um, you know, we, we, we've been talking back and forth for a little bit now, Jacqueline, and I, and I promised you at one point I was going to watch that movie. And um, it was very appropriate, I thought, for me. I, I had a, a long flight, and it's finally I, I downloaded it and, and bought it on Amazon. And um, I remember you saying, you know, it's, 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 it can be a difficult movie to get through. And I was like, well, who? Who uh, talks about their films that way? You know, I mean, I was, I was like, oh my god, okay. like my She's like, I was like yeah. okay. But anyway, so it's you know, so I, I didn't know what what to expect, and uh, completely drawn in, and and I think it was from a ton of aspects, and it's it's certainly not to um, shamelessly suck up or anything, but first of all, the writing, the acting, the cinematography, all of it was phenomenal. I mean. I didn't know what to expect. And, and, you know, when you, when you do something on your own, I, I understand, you know, sometimes there can be sacrifices for production and all of that stuff, but not only was it a world-class movie and just really well done, it was just so powerful and so emotional. I, I mean, I wasn't expecting the ride I, w I, I was taken on by, by you and, um, and your castmates, but um, very, very powerful film that, um, you know, it was, it was, it was one of those things too, when I landed, you know, I always text my wife, hey, I landed and I saw this incredible movie. You need to watch this, um, you know, as soon as I got on the ground in, in Shanghai. So uh, just like I said, it was um, it was quite an experience for me anyway, watching this movie. That's exciting. That's exciting. I agree with what they're saying. And um, I I am essentially a single parent. I've, I, I am in a relationship now, but I've been raising my daughter myself. She's 12. And so I, that part resonated with me very well in this struggle of, 
you know, making sure the things are paid and bills are paid and your daughter has this life that you want them to have. And so that was very relatable for me. Um, the sci-fi aspect was really intriguing. And I have a degree in psychology. So the cognitive dissonance in this film and that aspect of this transference of essentially a consciousness from a person into what essentially will become another person was very interesting and intriguing from that perspective of what psychology psychological effects are going to happen to these characters after this experience was really, really interesting for me. Mm. I really, I enjoyed it. My, my boyfriend kind of was sitting here reading a book and he's like, what are you watching? <laughs> I told him, I'm like, we'll have to go back and you can watch it from the beginning. Um, he has a degree in philosophy. So I think he'll kind of pull in from his perspective of, of the film and stuff, but it was really, really well done. Visually really interesting. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for watching it. Yeah, I mean, I, I I'm a huge Twilight Zone fan, right? And this to me, this seemed like a, like a feature film like version of like a Twilight Zone story, which which is great praise for me since I love that show so much because it just it tackles a lot of those issues where it's like it's the future, but it's not so far in the future. It's like unrecognizable, so you can like relate to a lot of things. And and I I feel like this is a very like yeah, I can see our society here in like 30 years or something where you know we're all everybody's still living in like normal looking houses or whatever right uh no one's flying a car around but there's certain technology around and and the whole technology is the whole crux of, of this story well the writer of the film was she wrote the short film is jennifer palm and he wrote it for itbs future states which is a great program through pbs um they basically give filmmakers 50, they used to give filmmakers $50,000 to make what they call a mini feature. They just wanted to make sure that the content was educational. So we, the, um, Jen and I met through a mutual friend who edited something for her. We'd also met at IFP around award season. And she got in touch with me and just asked me, she really just wanted to know if I would be interested and if not, if there are other actresses who'd be interested in playing the part, which is something that one would normally ask of me because I'm sort of like, I do think about those things. So um, I had just lost my mother and I had also been focusing on Aung San Suu Kyi, the leader in Burma, who at the time was under house arrest for many, many years. And this whole idea of the power of women sort of being in situ, the power of women sort of being in this domestic sphere that nobody ever gets to see, but of course, everyone gets to experiences in family units. But, you know, the potential of women was really on my mind. So I was like, I want to do it. And making the short with Jen, I ended up starting, like I usually do with films I was a part of, I, I co-wrote and um, we had such, we had such a great little cast. We shot in New York and we just, I just remember during the shooting of the short, we knew we had something really special because there's just a really great energy. Sometimes you're just blessed with it. And Jen is a really good director. So, when we were done with the short, I, mean, I think the last day she was like, I want to, I want to take all that you've given me. Cause she knew that all that we recorded couldn't be in the short. She's like, I want to make it into a feature. And then eventually she approached me to see if I wanted to co-write it. 
So I took that on with Jen and it took us a while to write because we basically embedded the short film into the feature. The premise of the film, probably without being giving us it being a spoiler alert, is if you loved your child so much and you knew that you were becoming redundant in your work, what would you do to ensure that she would have a life that you want to have for her? And this mother does decide to do this really risky operation and essentially, I guess I'm going to give it away. I mean, clone herself. I mean, one's not going to really know what happens, but, um, and for Jen and I, this was a pretty interesting thing to entertain because we feel, and I'm sure this is not just us, that our lives have been mediated by machines and by the agendas of people who make these machines. And we were just sort of taking the next speculative step, um, which is not very far away, right? Because we've got Kurzweil and the singularity. And we were just trying to think, how do we, how can we as human beings combat the forces that are controlling the design that's become a huge part of our life vis-a-vis machines? Like, how could we? So we just invested as much as we could, I did, in the writing of, and I took a lot of uh, inspiration from Kurosawa, actually, because he asked these big questions. Yes, and one of the, one of the things that um, was interesting to me was, well, I guess it was two things. It was also the dynamic with the sister in the movie, um, and what went on there uh, with with her husband and oh, that, that whole element? Cousin? Yeah, her cousin. Yeah, oh, cousin. <laughs> sorry, cousin. Sorry. And then the other the other piece to me was I always felt whether that was intentional in the movie or not is that your character was manipulated into making that decision, and that that it was a, a it, it was predestined by the company. They they were trying to force you down that road by putting you in a place where you could make another turn. That you know, especially you're trying to get your daughter into that school, and that's I don't know if that was intentional or not, if it was just a choice of the mother. But it it felt like there was, um, uh, you know, even though, in a sense, trying to talk talk out of it. But I, I just I don't know. Like I said, it's one of those movies where you get very reflective, and you're just you're looking at all these different pieces. And I'm sure it all gets interpreted differently per, per for every viewer, but that's kind of how I saw the the crux of this. You know, I um, I was like, okay, I, I I see the road that this is definitely pushing, and how the X meets the Y with that decision almost had to be made if she was going to get into the school and all kinds of things. So it was it was really really well done. Thank you, but that's super insightful because I, as an actor, kept saying to Jen when we were sitting at the writing table, you know, this is after we'd made the short, and I was like. If I had a daughter, and I don't have children, but if I had a daughter, I would need to be convinced completely, completely, in order to make this choice, that it was the right choice. So I said, they're, they're, like, we have to be really uncompromising about like, really, really being critical in, in, in making like, this a choice that she has no choice. We, we wanted, the love between the mother and the daughter to be so tight and so unquestionable 
that somehow it would spark in this daughter the ability to live with a machine who she she knows very well is not her mother and like still continue her own nurturance. So that sort of became like the really important um, node in the film was, it was sort of like human versus machine. You know, what a great idea that, that we could transfer our consciousness, but what if it's not a great idea? You know, what is it that we want it to sustain? And it was sort of like the heart of this daughter and her relationship with her mother. That's the hard part is, you know, I went back to school, moved in with my parents and uh, subsequently was divorced shortly thereafter. And I, I sat there and I thought I could continue to work these retail jobs the rest of my life and continue to need support from my family, from the state. And, and like the character does, going to people and saying, I need help right now. And I thought, I can't keep doing this. And so I went back to school as hard as it was. My daughter was young and I missed out on, you know, a lot of little things because she, but she was little. And, and now I look back and I'm considering going back to school and going back to grad school and she's older. And it's interesting to take those ideas and say, what can I do to make sure that I'm secure enough that she can have the future that she wants, whatever that may be. And what sacrifices are we willing to make to make that happen? Ken has kids, so he can he can relate to that as well, the sacrifices that you make, um, the choices that you make uh, to make sure that your kids have that life that you want them to have. And it, it can be really hard, and sometimes you feel that you're in, a, in that spot, rock in a hard place, and you're just stuck and there's nowhere else to go. And, and so what do you do? It's, it's very, very interesting and compelling. And I think one thing for me that really struck me was that her daughter's 13. <laughs> and that's a tumultuous time as it was. I, I don't, we don't get that from the film that she was kind of struggling with the teenager stuff that most preteens go through. But then to have this giant decision that her mom's going to make thrown upon her as well in that time where, you know, the character she says a few times, I don't know why I'm here. I don't, you know, and part of it, I work in behavioral health. And so that contemplation of like, why am I here? Why should I be here? Should I continue to exist? Why do I exist? Um, Really struck a nerve as far as, you know, self-harm and thoughts of suicide of like, should I just not keep existing was really impactful for me. And I couldn't imagine throwing a 12-year-old, 13-year-old <laughs> with this decision of mom's going to do something and it's going to drastically change us. And I don't know if I'm going to make it and I don't know how that's going to affect you. And so that was really just so interesting for me and kind of hit a nerve for me because my, my daughter's 12 and we have our days where I'm just like, we're not going to survive this because of everything that she's experiencing. And so I know that my choices and my behavior and the choices that I make even affect her more just because she's going through so much as it is. And of course, like I'm, I just played a mom. You're a mom. You are, you're, you're really a mom. But I, I think I also wanted to emphasize that this woman had worked for this biotech corporation that was selling a lie. And I think often with the pressures that we have in life to survive, we kind of swallow 
or don't look clearly at the truth of what the companies we're working for are doing. And I wanted to just show, I wanted to just say that could be deadly. Like that could impact your life if you don't look clearly at what it is that, you know, what line that you're selling for, you know, your company. But of course, this is Jen's story. And I, I think I just realized during this film how much I love working with cities. We shot in New York. I got locations. I um, worked a lot with costumes and casting. And I just realized, you know, I'm, I'm a maker. Um, as much as I love the writing, I like to construct things. And um, I love cities and I love responsive cities. Even working on low budget projects, um, as hard as it's been, it's also taught me a lot of compassion um, and fired a lot of the work that I'm doing now because what I care a lot about is how someone in your position, Haley, can live an affordable life how life can be affordable and decent. So, yeah, there's all these gifts that come out of working on a narrative. And I would say to sort of, I guess, cap it all off, Advantageous itself was, it's like a cautionary tale, right? Maybe like um, The Handmaid's Tale or something. It's like, this is where we could go, which has its relationship to Star Trek, right? Because Star Trek seems to be all about let's take the intelligence of the past and what we know of the present and project, project a future. We'll do it in a cautionary way, or maybe we'll also do it in a way that will take us way beyond anything we could ever imagine. That's a big connector I have with Star Trek. I just want to say, Jacqueline, the acting was unbelievable, powerful, um, it's funny as, as Zach said in the front end of this, you know, we spent maybe three minutes together in Las Vegas and I know we've had some, some conversations since then or whatever, but when you see somebody, you know, and of course I've seen you in generations and, it, you know, I don't know what the total screen time was for you in that movie, five, six, know, seven, eight minutes. minutes. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't, wasn't very much. Right. Um, but when you see a movie like this and, um, to see just, you know, some, someone that you know, even if it's casual, and, and just how powerful and how strong. I mean, you are a phenomenal actress. I, I was just blown away by the performance. And I think it was, it even resonated more because it's like, hey, I know this person. And uh, what, what an incredible performance. So I just wanted to make sure I got that out there because it was, you know, watching it occur, I just was so drawn in, but uh, phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. I really appreciate that. And I appreciate it also, especially because a lot of the topics in the film were happening in my life. I mean, I think someone posted my age on IMDb and I just a lot of the, the phone just stopped ringing. So it was exciting to know. And I guess if there's any theme I want to push on this in, in our talk together, it's like, it's exciting to know that even if you're not being recognized uh, as legitimate, you're not being given the opportunities that you think you should be given. If you 
like focus and you find the story that means something to you, or it doesn't even have to be a story, you find the art form or the expression that means something to you, you can actually project beyond, you know, what limitations seem to be saying to you. So I didn't really know that advantageous would be the last thing that I really want to act in, but I'm really grateful that I got to do it in the way that I got to do it because there was just so, there's so much that goes into acting and it's not, it's not that typical people, it's not that typical idea that people have of like, give me the right light, the right makeup, you know, I'm a narcissist, I just love, you know, um, expressing myself. Like acting is about love, loving people, learning about people, and then trying your hardest to put all that you've taken in of everyone into the work. Like you just try to let it all be present in front of the camera. And, you know, it was really stressful. We were not being paid anything to do that. We, we were under the gun for shooting. Um, but for some reason it worked out and I'm, I'm really grateful that it did work out and the way that it did. So Jacqueline, let, let's let's talk about um, you know what you've been doing and and what you've been doing uh, with with your personal ventures. You've been extremely busy in all kinds of areas, and um, it's it's one of those things where you know, like I said before, a three minute conversation and you start to understand and know what a person's up to. It's um, it's been quite a great learning for me. But tell everybody what what you're working on and what you have been working on. When we finished advantageous. I thought about going to grad school, Haley. Um, I definitely knew that, I mean, there are so many things I'm interested in, but the things that I was interested in were urban planning, writing, um, art design in the public domain, and then just studying art. But when I got into this program at Harvard, I took a drawing class to just prepare because I knew kind of what I wanted to focus on. I wanted to focus on public space for displaced people of which we have millions um, in the world. And I just probably, but I don't wanna make it sound altruistic, so altruistic because honestly, I grew up at a time where you could like stay outside to like seven or eight at night, your parents weren't worried about you and you could just like create an entire universe outside. And I loved being outside. So, Anyway, I took this drawing class and, you know, I was 48, 47, and I took the pencil to paper and, you know, I was working with this Eastern, Euro Eastern European teacher again. <laughs> and I was like, uh, you know, scribbling with the charcoal and all of a sudden it became three-dimensional. And I, I was like, what? <laughs> like, I didn't know that I could draw. I didn't know that I could make something with my hand in the paper and all of a sudden I just took off. I think from that moment I was like, I don't know if I just want to go to design school. I think I want to explore the plastics. You know, I wanted to explore sculpture, installation, drawing, all these wonderful things. And I had the opportunity to go to my local community college and um, this was all with the idea of me going to grad school and I, I ended up <laughs> belaboring a lot of people around me and trying to get into grad school and getting in, but deciding that 
um, not to go, um, to take action in my life now, because probably because of all the work I've done as an independent film artist and actor. Um, so, so yeah, I have, I went to community college and met a lot of great people there and I formed connections. And one of those connections has led to a collaboration that I'm doing right now with mobile studio. I think being an artist is more personal work, um, more philosophical, more intellectually rigorous, more subjective. So I've just been taking the gifts that I've been building and I'm focusing it now on, let's say, a couple of years ago, I started volunteering at a youth drop-in center called Safe Place for Youth in Venice. And I started working, um, I worked for the Greater Los Angeles Homeless Count as an organizer. And through that contact, like direct contact with homeless people and regular contact with the homeless youth. I just started thinking of ideas and it was connecting with my artwork. So one of the projects I came up with last year was to get um, solar lanterns to homeless youth last year um, to just try it out. I had this idea that as much as we want um, and the city wants to get 60,000 people housed as soon as possible. There are a lot of people out on the street and I thought one potential intervention could be to ring light. Uh, so I actually did this project with uh, the youth at SPY and I gave out a certain amount of lanterns and then I interviewed them about the use of the lanterns and it was just like, it was so useful that it was, I didn't say ridiculous because it's such an inappropriate word, but it was incredibly useful. They were using the lanterns to get dressed in their car at three or four in the morning. They're using it to go surfing. They're using it to um, survive in abandoned houses. Uh, they're using it to set up their tents in forests at night. They're using it to light their way on the road and they're hitchhiking. I mean, it was just like, so I, that was, I just saw that as like, okay, that's just one small idea and that can go that far. What else can I do? So I actually wrote an article about that and I'm still trying to get funding to get more lanterns to uh, the homeless community. The bigger idea I have now is to create public spaces of rest and refuge where potentially housed and unhoused populations can come together. And I feel like I've been in a number of meetings um, with like city council and expressed ideas. And I've heard feedback that, you know, building outdoor shelter might not be the first idea on the agenda because I think that the city really wants to just focus on getting people housed. And so I feel like as an artist, what I'm able to do is to just put ideas, prototypes out there. And a mobile studio just got a grant to build something uh, next spring in one of the parks in Santa Monica. So- So Jacqueline, what, what's mobile studio? So the folks understand. There's my 
general art studio, uh, which is where I do my own work. And then there's Mobile Studio, which was formed a couple of months ago. Um, it's an art project that's being sponsored by a bigger nonprofit arts organization called Fractured Atlas. And there's a thing called uh, nonprofit sponsorship where basically artists can, if they follow the mission of the organization that's sponsoring them, can also get nonprofit status. And Mobile Studio uh, is one of those projects. Well, there's been such a um, an explosion, particularly on the West Coast. Well, the populations have just been going up and up, and it's it's something where you know, Jacqueline, you're in the middle of it, being in LA, but I traveled to San Diego and the West Coast every single quarter, and over the last five or six years, you could you could see it. You know, it's like um, you step away from something, you come back; you step away, you come back. You can see the changes. And the, um, the 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 amount of folks um, that have um, uh, increased in the in the homeless population has just been very dramatic. It's, it's sixty to seventy thousand in LA alone. I'm not sure what it is in San Diego. And you you spoke a bit about um, the per, the people up in Silicon Valley. Um, I, I'm not going to get into my own theories up there, but it is so expensive. Um, to to live in San in San Francisco in those areas is so incredibly expensive. Is that you can have actually a fairly decent job, and you're forced to live in a car because you cannot get into a house in Silicon Valley. You can't. You know, a small cape is you know one or two million dollars with eighty percent down. It's it's crazy. So there's I think there's a number of factors that that are driving it. There's no doubt, and I think. Um, you know, growing up, and we'd see it somewhat in the East Coast as well, especially in a big city like Boston or New York, um, but nothing like you see in LA and and in the warmer climate cities. Uh, it's 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 obviously it's a huge problem, and I think the key here is you know tend, people very quickly will tend to blame the victims instead of trying to understand and then try to resolve the issue. And what I what I like about what what you're doing, Jacqueline, and I read that article. That, that you wrote, and I thought it was very, um, very eye-opening, um, the migratory kind of habits and, and how people, um, you know, kind of, kind of accept that way of life in a sense. It was, it really was uh, an incredible read, and I, it opened my eyes to, um, you know, to, to what's happening out there. But I think what, what's key is, is that it's, it's not a homeless issue, it's a national issue, it's a local issue. Uh, and we all have to be part of the solution, just like we are with all other, you know, things that plague. That's what uh, um, that's what it's all about is is trying to to come together and, and figure this out. And some cities do it better than others, and some cities actually create the problem that they're trying to. You know, they've created the problem themselves, and they can't even get out of their own way to even help address it. So I think there's there's a lot that um, uh, that needs to happen. But I think through organizations and through um, what you're trying to do, which is, you know, you're, you're taking a piece at a time to help here and there uh, and make an impact on, on, on folks' life in a positive way. And then on the other side, you know, working with city planning and so forth to try to get um, uh, your arms around it. Uh, what I'll say is it's a, it's a very big and complex problem. 
but just because it's big and complex doesn't mean we don't attack it. It's it's something that has to be done, and um, I'm just I'm just glad there's people out there that are focused on it. Yeah, there's a wonderful man named Ralph DaCosta Nunez in New York City who is doing really great things for. Um, I think his organization is called Homes for the Homeless, and he focuses on getting families um, in shelters and getting them housed. And he just talks about, you know, just the intelligent approach of like triaging and understanding, you know, this, understanding why this person is homeless. Was it chronic? Did it just happen? And, and then how to properly address each different kind of person and their situation. Clearly it is like one of the biggest issues of our time. And I am not beginning to say that I know any solution. I just know what I see every day in Los Angeles, which is, I mean, we used to have a few tents underneath bridges and now we have entire blocks. Um, I, for one, I'm gonna have probably one of the most bizarre points of view of anyone, but I'm glad that they've got tents. I just think the thing that I want to do is to defray the loss, right? Uh, just defray the rate of the loss. That's what I want to do. So, I mean, I keep driving around this city saying, why don't we have more public amenities for homeless people? Just, let's just say water 24-7. Access to water, a place to put your belongings, shelter from the sun, and of course, beds, and of course, lodging, that's what we want, and stability and wraparound support. But I feel like as an artist, I'm just kind of like, I'm like thinking, well, what if I can help build some structures that look like public art, but are also inhabitable, semi-inhabitable? That's sort of where we are with our inspirations and our thinking. And we're getting a grant for it. So we just hope to get more support so we can try out more things. And another big aspect that will be part of what we're building is I am a composer. I, um, I composed music for Advantageous. I've been a singer-songwriter for years. And um, I want to create melodies that can play in these structures um, and potentially interactive um, musical projects where people can interact with their cell phones or possibly just um, interacting with screens and things. So I have these ideas of like these sort of low key pavilions of rest and creativity in public space. And we're just starting. I mean, it's barely a month, month and a half old, but um, that's, that's where my focus is right now. In order to, to really um, kind of dive in, Jacqueline, and, and see the work you're doing and, and to kind of help support not only this, but your other business ventures, what are the ways that people can, can find you and, and see what it is you're doing? So Mobile Studio is on the Fractured Atlas site. We've created a smaller um, URL for it, which is bit.ly, which a lot of people know uh, for URLs, bit.ly forward slash mobile underscore studio. Also, JacquelineKing.net. It's like an aggregate of so many sites and places that I'm accessible online. Um, I'm also on Instagram 
at Mobile Studio, but that's three M's. It's Mobile Studio. Um, <laughs> and one of my other projects, which is at You Came From a Vagina. Well, why don't you talk about that for a minute? Yeah, because that's... <laughs> can't, can't let that go. Um, because I, I remember when, when Ken and I came to, uh, to your booth at Star Trek Las Vegas, you know, you had your Star Trek stuff, and you had that over there. I'm like, oh, this is interesting. Talk to us more about this. And, you know, we had a nice conversation about it. So kind of give us the, the whole pitch for that. You Came From a Vagina is just a part of my personal art practice. I made it while I was in school. I just... It was when Trump was running, and... I just envisioned myself or another young woman being in a conversation with suited men with this written across her chest. You came from a vagina. And, you know, part of it's just like that quickly, like provocative nature in me, but a, a probably also another part of it is just wanting, wanting women to be, wanting to aid women to be, not just women, though. I think men are wearing the shirt as well, and babies. Hey, but, everybody um, does. Like everybody comes from a child. That's just science. So, <laughs> well, like, and then people are parsing, parsing. You know, they're like, "Well, not everyone came from a vagina." And I'm like, "I know, I got it." But it's like it's the gateway, and the point is basically you just remember when when you're with a woman, and or when you're talking about a woman. Or, you know, in more extreme cases, when you're abusing a woman, you just remember where you came from. Uh, I know that sounds <laughs> super serious, but it's true. And I think women deserve that respect. And what I'm interested the most from this t-shirt is that, is the conversations that come out of it. I've, um, I've built an Instagram gallery, right? And I've, there's probably about 200 of the shirts out in the world right now and people with one of the things that i'm doing is i'm surveying people to see what their experience has been like but i'm also inviting them to create an art piece it can be in any form it can be sonic visual it could be writing and people have been writing back to me about their experiences like a young lesbian woman talked about being on the train and you know, being stared at for the 1,000th time on the train and a man looking at her breasts and reading that phrase. And she said she could, she was watching his eyes go from like looking at breasts to reading that phrase and like waking up. And she was, she said she just savored that moment. So that's one of the posts. And I've really just created a gallery so that people can, share in whatever way they want. So I feel like that's that's a big part of my work is I just want to facilitate conversation, you know, like this show, like this podcast. Just facilitate the improbable. What can come out of a moment that you you can't control with your thumbs and a screen? What can you invite? Right? So there's a series of shirts and this is just the first. And how can they get them? So I, I'm, I know you 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 paint them all by hand. You were telling us, and um, I do. And you sell. I mean, so this is it's very personal. It's uh, it's it's pretty cool. Well, it's an homage to my parents because they have such great handwriting. Um, my grandmother, who I never met, um, made a living making garments, so that's also in it too. Um, they can get it on Big Cartel. So yeah, there's a shop online. 
Um, you can also contact me through the Instagram that you came from a vagina. Just drop me a message and figure out how to get them the shirts. We have them from extra small to extra large in different colors. So I guess speaking of being provocative, is that the name of this week's show? (laughs) (laughs) I think it's called generosity because I've just felt so much generosity from you guys to just listen to me like lay out the story. (laughs) Well, no, it's been it's been very insightful, very fascinating stuff. So I know we've had a long conversation here, but Jacqueline, thank you for taking the time. Uh, you're just a, a wonderful human being doing a lot of great social justice work out there in every sense of the word. So uh, great to get to know you. I'm glad to start see Star Trek and bring people together, just a minor part. And then you could open up a whole new world of conversation with other people. And I 100% agree with you. It's about creating the conversation because in these days, everybody gets so entrenched in their little corner or whatever, and, and nobody like wants to engage anymore. And, and that, that's what's great about these kind of conversation starters you're talking about. So, And that's what I hope to have more of is more difficult conversations. Let's have them. We've got the elections coming up. Let's not just be on one side or the other. Let's go towards meeting the sides and and coming out of conversations, maybe not right or on top, but different. Let's change and grow. I quite agree. And it really has been such a pleasure. I know Ken and, and Zach got to meet you in Vegas. I had other vacation plans this year, so I was not there, but it's been a true joy getting to talk with you tonight. Thank you very much. Likewise. Thank you. And I guess, um, Jacqueline, thank you for, um, it's, it's, it's been an interesting road, uh, since, since we met in Las Vegas, I've had a, a wonderful time getting to know you a little bit better and, and have some good discussions with you and talk about your business ventures. It's, um, it, like I said, it's been a, a kind of a, a pretty fun journey. I'm glad you finally were able to make it on the podcast. Uh, like I said before, you know, we, we want to make sure that, um, you know, our listeners really get a good understanding of, you know, all, all the Star Trek elements. I think that's great. Um, but when we talk about the philosophical approach about what Star Trek is about, it's about, um, it's about uh, acceptance. It's about diversity. It's about, um, you know, a, a utopian outcome because people can figure out how to solve problems together. Uh, a lot about what you were saying with these upcoming elections. Let's stop worrying about being quote unquote right or being on one side or the other, but solving issues. And, uh, and, and I think, you know, it's, it's one thing to talk about Star Trek and how they write these things. It's another thing to, to get involved with somebody who's actually living it. Um, who's, who's really, there's a lot of people trying to make a positive impact on the world. I do understand that. Um, but a lot of times it's, um, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of surrounded within a a very small kind of family centric way. And, uh, I, I think, uh, a lot of the discussions and, and things that I've been involved with in talking with you over these last four or five months, um, have definitely opened the aperture of my lens considerably as to uh, what people can do. And, um, you know, it, it's also been very reinforcing knowing that there's people of a great character such as yourself out there trying to make a difference and, it, and it, you know, significant sacrifice. So really, really do appreciate you finally getting on the show with us. Thank you. And I just sort of want to say it takes one to know one when you talk about character and someone who's doing things for other people. I think that every time I talk to you, you're on your way back from a charity event. It's, it's an honor. And to talk about 
moving beyond our own families, I think that I just have to be really honest that one of the reasons why I do the work that I do is because I don't have my own little family and my parents both were sort of pushed out of their countries at very young ages and they sort of lost home. So I think that this, these themes that were relevant for them are still running through my work. Um, and I really do believe that there can be alternate versions of home for people, whether it's in a theater or whether it's through a, the Star Trek community or whether it's via podcasts um, or even connections through conventions. I feel like we're, we're all, family is accessible in many different kinds of ways. Let's say that. And through my work, I want people to be able to feel the body of the family around them in some way or access to that. So I'm super grateful. And um, I really hope people will go to the mobile studio site and just see the work we're doing. And we do have that sponsorship from a nonprofit. So all donations that are offered to the project are tax deductible to the extent permitted by law. I have to say that. It'd be great to receive some encouragement and support for the work. Yeah, it's 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 that time of year. It's it's a it's a good time if um if people are looking to um to donate and and help a special cause. This is certainly um a pretty powerful one. So I, I can't encourage it enough for for people to go uh, check out the website. It'll be in the show notes uh, and and help do a, a good thing this season and beyond consistently. Uh, and, and let's see if we can get Mobile Studio to, to really take off. Thanks. Thanks, everyone. All right. Well, talking about Jacqueline Kim, her career and her great humanitarian efforts aren't the only thing we're doing on Trek FM this week. Here's a quick look at what else you might have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, Literary Treks. I knew from the beginning it was going to be a very large and complicated undertaking. I was asked by the editor and the licensor to come up with a storyline for Picard that would deal with the fallout of what I unleashed in my novel Section 31 Control, in which Section 31's crimes, and in fact its very existence, are publicly exposed to the Federation at large as well as its interstellar neighbors. Earl Grey. Troy looks down at her empty stomach. <laughs> <laughs> Let me do this part. I'm going to act it. Okay. Troy looks down at her empty stomach and frowns telepathically. <laughs> oh, I wish. Listeners, could. you couldn't see it, but I did that. <laughs> oh, okay. LaForge. <laughs> Computer, locate a big thing of chips. <laughs> to the journey! What about the basics, planet? That planet's not bad. There's a lot of wide open spaces. You just have to avoid going in the caves. Yeah. I mean, anthropologically speaking. No spelunking on that planet. You can spelunk on the <laughs> Unicomplex, but you can't spelunk on that planet. No. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. That he said... <laughs> he was taking he, the new body out for a ride? Yeah, that was great. <laughs> I mean, it was a great line. It just doesn't really fit what really happened. Like... He wasn't out there dating other people, you know? Like, well, he was trying to figure out who this new Culber was, you know? No, I know, but it, I, it was I like funny. It was lighthearted. It, right. It just didn't, it just doesn't fit what he actually did. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. 
So check out all these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, you can get the show on iTunes or the Apple Podcast app. Be sure to hit the subscribe button. That helps us out greatly and makes it easier for other listeners to find the show. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Speaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course, you can stream and download the MB3 file from our website and grab the RSS link as well. If you would like to get in touch with us here at Trek FM, you can always find us on trekfm slash contact and look at the sidebar on the show page, or you can go to speakpipe.com slash trekfm and please leave us a voice message. You can also contact us through Twitter at trekfm, Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm, and the Babel Conference. Type the Babel Conference, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook or go to our website at trekfm.com and click discussion on the menu bar. Another way you can help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. If you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, you'll find our current goals and different milestone contribution levels along with all the great perks we have for you. These perks include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits, seats on our content development team, and more. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Speaking of Patreon, thank you as always to our associate producers for Standard Orbit. They are Norman C. Lau, Nick Anastasio, Tim Robertson, Richard Marquez, Corey Elrod, Dan Rhodes, and Mike Richards. Your contributions and support mean the world to us, and we appreciate you being associate producers on Standard Orbit. So to find me on the interwebs, you can find me on Twitter at BostonSCPO. You can find me on Twitter at Trekkie01D. You can also hear me talking about both Discovery and the Orville over on the Fandom Podcast Network's Discoville podcast that drops every week. As for me, you can find me on Twitter at MoronZach. That's M-O-O-R-E-O-N-Z-A-C-H. I'm also the host of my own podcast, Always Hold On To Smallville where we talk about each and every episode of that Young Superman show. You can find us on Twitter at AlwaysMallville with one S. I'm also the co-host of Franchise Fatigue, a podcast where we look at sequels, remakes, movie franchises, and when a franchise gets fatigued. You can find us on Twitter at UFP Earth, part of the United Federation of Podcasts. So thanks everyone for listening, and join us again next time here on Trek FM for another episode of Standard Orbit. <laughs>